You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Lord, as we just dive into this text to understand it, I pray that the Spirit who wrote it would be speaking to us right now. Lord, do all that's in your heart today. Just pour down like rain upon us and just wash our eyes to see your majesty today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see in verse 15 of chapter 21 that Paul ended up going to Jerusalem, believing that that was the will of the Lord for his life. And as he gets to Jerusalem, he goes in and he sees James and the elders as they're gathered together, really the leadership there in Jerusalem. And there in verse 19, we see he told them all the things that God had done among the Gentiles. I mean, you can just picture him talking about, you know, Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea and just the the radical transformation that had been taking place in the lives of Gentiles, where in in Ephesus, we see that the gospel went out to all of Asia. I don't know if you guys have ever had missionaries come back and and tell their reports of their journeys, but so often it's just an exciting time. And nowadays we have presentation systems, you know, and we can see pictures of the faces of those transformed lives. And it's an exciting thing. It says the brethren glorified the Lord as they heard these accounts. They were excited about that. But James and the elders, man, they had a very tough ministry there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, they're, they're going out and they're witnessing and testifying to these group of people that are that are really saturated in their culture, in their language, in their heritage. Uh, and, and you know, they're, they're coming with this gospel of grace and there's confusion on, well, what does that mean to the law? I mean, the law is obsolete now because of Jesus. And, and, you know, James and the brothers, they had this real sensitive ministry to the Jews. Some would say perhaps being too sensitive. You know, and as we see Paul here, here he comes and he tells of the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. You know, there's there's rejoicing and it seems like the second that the applause stops happening, they say, okay, well, hey, there's a lot of people that are offended at you, buddy. You know, saying that you've been, you know, saying that the law is, is obsolete and that's offensive to them. And, and, you know, why don't you just show that you're still a good little Jew boy? And, you know, why don't you take a vow and go into the temple and spend some time there? And that would just really ease some consciences. But Paul, you know, Paul with this sensitivity to that, went ahead and did it. He went ahead and took probably this Nazarite vow where he shaved his head, let it grow again, shaved it again, and then offered that hair up as a burnt offering. And the question's been posed, did Paul compromise grace here? Did Paul compromise grace? We have to remember that by this point, Galatians had been written, Romans had been written, these letters that were just champions of grace, you know, just just really exalting God's grace to man, his undeserved favor upon our lives. And uh, I believe that Paul did not compromise grace, but that in this case of taking this vow and, you know, being sensitive to these Jewish brothers, he was actually living out what he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, where he says, though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win the those who are under the law, to those that are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, he says, that I might win those who are without the law. He goes on to say, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means just save some of them. (laughs) Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. The whole reason Paul took this vow was so that he could win 
in these brothers, you know, that he could actually testify of grace. He wanted to, if as much as possible on him, live at peace with all men. And this offering that he made, this vow we read of in verse 26, it wasn't a sin offering, but it, you know, it could have been this burnt offering of consecration and commitment to the Lord, which was what a Nazarite vow was. But in verses 27 through 29, we read of these Asian Jews stirring up the crowd. Now, did these characters come out of nowhere? You know, where'd these guys come from? Well, where did Paul just come from? Asia, Ephesus. And Paul writes, to, or Paul tells the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, verse 19, that these Asian Jews had consistently plotted against Paul. And so they were the ones who were this catalyst that led to this riot that we're going to read of or that we read of here in chapter Chapter 22 says they stirred up the crowd or they agitated trouble. Just picture that agitator in your washing machine, you know, hitting the clothes and spinning them around. And that's exactly what they did in such a sense that the whole city we read went into an uproar. In the course of all of this, they seized Paul and they shout out for the rest of their Jewish brothers to come and help them put the beat down on Paul. Stories told of a gal named Betty who was the church's gossip and self appointed supervisor of the congregation's morales. Betty kept sticking her nose in other people's businesses. Most church members were unappreciative of her activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. However, she made a mistake one day when she recently accused Ted, a man from the church, of being an alcoholic after she saw his pickup truck parked outside the town's only bar that afternoon. Ted, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and then walked away. Later that evening, he parked his pickup truck in front of her house and left it there all night. As we look at chapter 22, we're going to see the dangers of assuming things about people and We'll also see how Paul defends himself against these accusations. Now the Jews here, these Asian Jews, they make two false accusations. The first one is in verse 28, chapter 21, verse 28, where they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place. Okay, so their first accusation against him begins with he taught all men everywhere. You might underline that because that really speaks to the impact of Paul's ministry. All men everywhere were hearing about the gospel, but really their big beef with him was that he was teaching supposedly against our people, against our law, and against our temple. Now that was like waving a red flag in front of a bull, you know? You talk about our people, you know, you talk about our law, you talk about our temple, and man, you're going to get the horn. That's the bull, you get the horn. These guys were fired up about this. He's attacking our nation. He's attacking our theology and our understanding about God. He's attacking our law and the temple, which is the symbol of God's presence in our lives and over our nation. And it's a symbol of our devotion to him. Now, really, this accusation was, was a half-truth. It was a half-truth. You know, they had made an assumption, which will actually take them to another assumption, another accusation. Now, as Paul taught the gospel of grace and that the law had become obsolete, 
belief, the only reason was because the law had actually been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There was no more a need for sacrifice and offerings because Jesus Christ laid down his life upon the cross once for all to be a substitution for the sins of the world. And so really they kind of had this half truth that led to this giant accusation against Paul that he preaches against our land, our law, and our temple. Then they are led into another accusation, another assumption against Paul. And that was that he brought this Gentile or this Greek guy into the inner courts. Now that's a big deal. And we read about that at the end of verse 28, that they uh, brought, he brought this Greek into the temple. He's defiled this holy place for they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. This is, this is a big deal. And as you study the temple, you've got the outer courts of the temple outside, you know, had a fenced off area. That was for the Gentiles. The Gentiles could be there. Then you had the court of the women. Then you had the court of the men. And then you had the, the holy place. Well, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was this four and a half foot wall that had a sign prominently displayed, which archaeologists have actually found. And the sign read, no foreigner may enter within this barricade. Anyone who does so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So here they think this Greek guy, this Trophimus, this Ephesian has been brought in by Paul. And it just enrages them to the point of they could kill Trophimus and really kill Paul if they wanted to. And you know what? The Romans would let it happen. This is one of those things that they just, they just let it be. They like, okay, just kill him. You know, no trial was needed and no formal allegations were needed either. But the truth was, it was a lie. It was a lie. Paul had not taken Trophimus. Now they had seen Paul with Trophimus cruising around the city and these Asian Jews, they knew Paul very well. So when they see him later on in the temple, they see him with these four guys that had taken a vow. They had their head, their hair shaved off their heads. So these guys weren't looking exactly like Trophimus, but it probably was him. And so they just erupted and, and brought these accusations against Paul. Now it's interesting, and you might be able to bear witness with this, how people believe lies, especially when those lies support your prejudices. And I'm the same way, but if someone makes a lie against my prejudices, even though it's untrue, I kind of file that lie away in the inner part part of my heart to bring it up later should that prejudice come against me. And that's, that's sinful. And we see that here in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 21 and 22, we see the impact of the failure of our integrity in stopping gossip and stopping lies and in stopping half-truths or misunderstandings. We can look here and see what happens when people just don't tell the truth. As Alistair Begg put it, if we were going to say that some, uh, if we were going to say what someone has done, it should not be what we suppose they've done. If we're going to say what someone believes, it should not be what we suppose suppose they believe. And as God's people, if we, if as God's people, we would stay simply to the facts, many slanderous accusations would be prevented. A man named E.J. Young, who's a 20th century Old Testament theologian, writes about his friend Gresham Macon, who was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Well, Macon ended up kind of breaking off with another group of, fa- of the faculty, and they revolted against the liberal theology at Princeton of 
of its day. And so they went on, him and his buddies went on to form Westminster Theological Seminary, which would be a, a seminary rooted in strong biblical lines. And as a result of that, this Macon would be on the receiving end of all kinds of sneers and jabs and slanderous accusations. And later on, his friend E.J. Young writes about this season of slander. He says, they could spread stories about him that are not true. Those stories are not easy to live down. People are willing to believe a falsehood rather than the truth. This is how Satan fights. He's a, uh, here is a good practical rule for us as Christians. When somebody says something derogatory to you about someone else, just forget it. Do not believe it. It may be true. It may not be true. Whatever you do, do not spread it. Do not repeat it. Gossip is a terrible thing. At times, I think it one of the worst of sins. You can destroy a person's character by gossip. And Satan delights in that. Gossip simply eats the bones of another person and destroys them. Interesting, isn't it, that Satan's name means slanderer. means slanderer. So no doubt it would be his tactical weapon to use gossip and slander against the church of Christ. Here he's using it through the Jews against the apostle Paul. Gossip, misunderstanding, half-truths, and assumptions could be the devil's tool against Christ's church. The Hebrew word translated gossip in the Old Testament is defined as one who reveals secrets or one who goes about as a talebearer or a scandal monger. A gossiper is a person who claims to have privileged information about people and proceeds to reveal that information to those who have no business knowing it. Now, the distinguishing factor between gossip from just sharing information are these two things. Number one, your intent. A gossiper typically has the goal of building themselves up by making others look bad and exalting themselves as being some kind of special privilege to knowledge. The other thing that distinguishes gossip from just sharing some, some truth or some facts is the type of information that is shared. A gossiper will re uh, reveal the faults and the failings of others or potentially embarrassing and shameful details of others, regardless of what it does to that other individual, even if they mean no harm in that case, it's still gossip. And as you read Romans chapter one, you see that gossip is a sign of a depraved life. And as you read that list of sins there, whom the wrath of God is against, gossip is one of them. It's in the same category as homosexuality, immorality, adultery, idolatry, disobedience to parents. Gossip is the result of a depraved mind. It's a serious sin, and it's a characteristic of those who are under God's wrath. We read about in 1 Timothy that widows and those who are idols can be so tempted and prone to gossip. These women are described as gossip and busybodies. As Timothy's told, they say things that they ought not. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 12 through 13, if you're a fast Bible flipper, you can flip there, says, besides this, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossip and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no 
opportunity, listen to this, for the adversary to speak reproachfully. So when there's that busybodiness or that tailbearer syndrome going about, it's a, it's a time, it's an opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. You know, we live in a town where the unemployment rate is so high. Many of you in this church right now, you're unemployed. And I'll tell you what, you have a lot of people praying for you and sympathizing with you and willing to lay their lives down to help you. But let me speak a warning into your life that that time of unemployment would not lead to idleness in your life, but rather that you'd see your time of unemployment as a radical opportunity to serve Christ and to be incredibly involved in serving the body of Christ, serving his body, doing your share. And also with that, walk this week, walk after day today with this sensitivity that you don't become idle. At the end of 1 Thessalonians and at the end of 2 Thessalonians, Paul closes both letters to those Thessalonians to watch out for those that are idle because they become busybodies. They become gossipers. As we've been told, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And God cautions that we don't allow idleness enter our lives. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, why don't you flip there to the book of Proverbs. We're just going to read a few scriptures out of Proverbs, starting in uh, Proverbs 20, 19. We're going to kind of backtrack in the book. Proverbs 20, 19, the New Living Translation puts it this way. A gossip goes around telling secrets. So don't hang around with chatterers. What wise wisdom from Solomon to just not hang around and spend time with those that are gossiping. If you find yourself in a place in your life where you have idle time and you use that time to be around others, to hang out, make sure that that hanging out doesn't lead to a slander session or lead to a gossip column, you know, within your living room. Proverbs eleven twelve says it's foolish to belittle one's neighbor, but a sensible person keeps quiet. A gossip goes around telling secrets, but those who are trustworthy can keep a confidence. Flip over to Proverbs 16, 28, that it's a perverse man who sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. You know, we're, we're reading in chapter 22 of Acts and 21 of Acts of these Jews who are enemies that use gossip as a tool. But isn't it sobering to know that even within the church, even within the best of friendships, gossip can lead to division. That chattering can lead to the separation of the best of friends can lead to bitterness and anger and trouble and pain among friendships. And sadly, even within the church, there are people who thrive on this and they look for opportunities to throw out allegations against their brother or their sister. Flip to Proverbs 18, 7. A fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. Man, if we are gossipers, if we are those that have assumptions and tell people about the assumptions of our mind or our heart, it's just like tasty trifles, isn't it? I mean, when that gossip starts, isn't it just like, ooh, this is good. Oh, I just want to hear about this person. I want to, it's like Turkish delight in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know? It's just like, man, I will sell my soul for this little bit of this morsel here. Just let me know it. Just let me know it. I'll, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness later, but just tell me it now. It's sin. It's depravity. It needs to be repented of and we need to hold each other accountable in our guarding and our protecting of one another. Proverbs 21, 23, the last proverb here, whoever guards his mouth and his tongue 
keeps his soul from trouble. Man, if we would guard our mouth, as James tells us, man, our tongue, it's such a little member, but, you know, it, it kindles such a great forest fire. And we can get ourselves in such trouble. May we surrender these sinful desires of gossip and, and allegations to the Lord, that we could remain righteous. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians there in that last chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, man, that you would just aspire to lead a quiet life. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> just a quiet, peaceable life, not getting into anyone else's business, you know, but just, man, just oh, aspire to that, to lead a quiet life and then to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded. And so as we are a culture of many words, we don't keep much secret anymore, do we? Got the Facebook, you know, and we got on there and, and we just write everything that's on our mind. You know, I don't care. I'm just going to sit down. I'm just, I'm, whatever my fingers put down on this keyboard, it's going out so the whole world, my 500 friends can see it. But man, that we would just be cautious with our words. We would be cautious with our emails. We'd be cautious with our voicemails. In this information age, that we would just be careful. We would have to lead a quiet life in all of this. Alan Redpath, in his book, A Passion for Preaching, said an easy way to, to, to guard what you say is the acronym for THINK. T-H-I-N-K. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? You know, Paul's in this place where one half truth based on misunderstanding and another assumption and, you know, it, it just boils up to the place where an entire city rises against him. As in verse 30 of Acts chapter 21, we see all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Does it remind you of anybody? That's just of Jesus. We're going to see a parallel here as we go through this next chapter. We're going to go through it quickly because a lot of it's repetition from Acts chapter 9. We're going to see this parallel between Paul who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example. I'm leading by example. All Jerusalem is in an uproar here seeking to kill him. And in verses 32 through 33, we see the Roman government intervene. You know, this command commander has his sentries posted above the temple looking down for any disruption. This group of soldiers that would be dispatched to just stop just any conflict. You know, growing up, you know, in Corvallis and going to a lot of those OSU games, you know, I was always interested at these security guards that would stand there down on the field and how the entire time they would have their back to the football game and they would just watch the crowd. Their sport was watching the crowd, you know, and the moment something happened, they would be on that, that person and they would just eliminate the, the problem right away, dragging the person out. You know, there might have been a, a quick 30 seconds of people looking around, what was that all about? And then they're focused back on the field again. And that's the case that happens here. These sentries posted, they're just watching the worshipers. And it's funny, isn't it? That security guards have to be there watching the Jews because something was going to go down at some point or another. And it usually did. And these security guards were actually, you know, never bored. You know, They always had something to jump on. And so they did. They jumped on Paul and they bound him with these two chains. Uh, verse 33 and Agabus's prophecy there uh, comes true. Remember his prophecy from the last chapter. They arrest him. They don't give him his Miranda rights, but they place him in chains and they ask him, who are you? In verse 33, and what have you done? Isn't it interesting? We don't often think with this perspective, with the Lord's perspective, that this arresting of Paul was actually the best thing that could have happened to him at that second. I mean, he was getting 
beaten. And through their arrest, his life was spared. In verse 35, we read, when he'd reached the stairs, they, they were taking him up to the barracks. And when he'd reached the stairs, he had to be carried away, away by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, because of the multitude of the people uh, followed after crying out, away with him, away with him. So how, do, how does it seem Paul's Nazarite vow is going right now for, you know, making peace with the brothers? You know, is that, sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> it's as much as is possible on your end of things, live peaceably with all men. But sometimes you just, you can't do anything about it. Interesting. Paul was given this thorn in the flesh and some believe that it was this consistent persecution in his life that kept him humble. He writes about, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, about one of the most humble moments of his life is when he had to be let down uh, the walls in Damascus by a basket at nighttime. You know, they let him down through a basket and he had to run away at fear of his life. Remember, he had to run away from Thessalonica at nighttime, constantly running away. That keeps you humble. You know, as people see you running out of the city, who is that guy? Well, that's the mighty apostle Paul. The mighty apostle Paul, I thought Christians were supposed to be, you know, clothed in, in, you know, like amazing rich robes and riding out around on a chariot with a white stud pulling it, you know? Nope, nope. Look, that's one of the main leaders of Christianity and look at him go down that wall in a basket. Isn't that silly? And, you know, perhaps this was one of the moments for Paul that was, was kind of humbling as he's beaten to a bloody pulp and dragged by soldiers and then picked up on their, their shoulders, shoulders, <laughs> soldiers, shoulders, and packed up the stairs. In verse 37, and then he was, as he was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Now, as we look at the harm of and the danger of these assumptions and these misunderstandings and this gossip and this slander, we also want to see how Paul reacted to it. And one of the things we'll note here in this chapter is we want to note well the art of diplomacy here. Paul really acts as a diplomat here, which speaks of being subtly skillful, and tactful in handling a situation. And so when you go through trials where you are misunderstood or assumptions come against you or gossip or slander, one of the best things that you can do, not the only thing, is be skillful and tactful in the way that you respond. Here we see in verse 37, as he just asks, asks nicely to this commander, may I say something to you? May I say something to you? He's just polite. And as it goes on in verse 38, are you not the, you know, the, the Roman? Roman says, aren't you the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So he's got this just politeness about him. You know, may I say something to you? I beg you, permit me to say something to the people. There was no pride. I'm the mighty apostle Paul appointed by God. And I demand to be heard right now. But no, he, he had this tact about him. And I think there's a lesson in that. But we also see another case of mistaken identity against Paul. The Roman the whole time assumed that Paul was this Egyptian assassin who'd been known to be a false prophet to the Jews, hating the Romans. He would come in and he would sneak into the temple with about 400 of his soldiers and he would really assassinate any of the Jews that seemed to sympathize with the Romans. And so, uh, you know, at, at one point, this 
this Egyptian assassin had been in battle with the Romans and all of his men had been killed except for himself. And so at this point in history, they thought he's come back in and he's just seeking one last opportunity to stab somebody in the temple. And so they're assuming that this is Paul. And so they treat him, you know, as, as an assassin until they realize he, he speaks Hebrew. He wants to talk to these guys and he speaks Greek. You know, hey, just can I speak with the people? And you can think the commander's probably thinking, hey, if you think you can quiet him down, go ahead. He gives him this opportunity on one of the most interesting pulpits that we've seen so far in the book of Acts, a staircase. And so as we see here, verse 40, when he given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. So speaking to the crowd, he, he, he gestures towards them. Who knows? Maybe it was like a Shakespearean type of gesture, you know, or maybe it was a calm down, calm down. Who knows? But he motions and these people get quiet. Then they hear the Hebrew language and they become even more quiet and they listen. And if there's something we've learned in the book of Acts, it's that these Jews would listen to anything that had to do with their language, their culture, their history, you know, and it really was a good opportunity to preach the gospel. So Paul uses that opportunity here and he, and he addresses uh, the, the, the multitudes that are around him. But in that, we see more diplomacy. How does he address this crowd? He addresses them as brethren and fathers. He was respectful in his address, and he was loving in his address. And does anybody know who the last person in the book of Acts was who addressed his crowd, brethren and fathers? It was Stephen, back in Acts chapter 7. And you'll have to remember, Paul was at that point a Saul, and he was on the receiving end of that message. And you, you, he, he had to have been thinking just, you know, that had to have bugged him before he was saved. And then after he was saved, he had to have been so ministered to it that here's Stephen. He's defending his life before the Sanhedrin. And he addressed us with such love and respect. And we know that Paul had such a love for his fellow countrymen, so much so that he would have been willing to have been accursed that they might be saved. And so he begins with intimacy and with contact. And he says, listen to my defense or my apology my apologetic. And we're going to see in this chapter, which is a note for us on how we respond to gossip and slander and assumptions and misunderstanding. We see in his defense, this whole chapter, it wasn't of himself, but he was defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was defending the incredible transforming power of the risen Jesus. And that's important as we go through conflict that we don't defend ourselves, but we defend God. We defend the glory of God. As Spurgeon says on defense, on defending ourselves, are you striving to do good? And do others impute wrong motives to you? Do not be particular about answering them. Just go straight on and your life will be the best refutation of the column. If any man desires to reply to the false assertions of his enemies, he need not say a word. Let him go and do good good, that will be his answer. And doesn't Peter tell us that that's the example that we had in who? In Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. So the Jews loved their history and they listened to Paul here. Tell basically his testimony as Paul says who he was and who he'd been. And we read the story. We read how he basically states the fact of his background. And that's basically, that's another good thing that we can do in, 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 in uh, not defending 
defending ourselves, but as these misunderstandings come against us, just simply state the facts. Just simply state the facts. You don't have to defend yourself. You can just state the facts, and that's a tremendous help to you. You know, Paul basically says, man, here's the facts. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, verse 3, brought up in the city here in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, I can't say that, Gamaliel, <laughs> taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God. I persecuted to, uh, this way to, um, excuse me, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, and all the pri- high priests bear me witness and all the elders. You know, they knew about the chains and, and Paul going and delivering men and women into chains. And Paul is able to use his history, who he was, where he'd been. And he begins this former zeal in Judaism. I'm from Jerusalem. You know, I was brought up in Jerusalem. I had this professor disciple me, Gamaliel. I was taught in the strictness of the law. I'm z- I was zealous towards God like you guys are today. And basically in that, he says, hey guys, I'm Ivy League here. I'm like a Harvard dude, you know? I, I have some rapport with you all. You know my history and you know that I was just like you. I hated Christians. I know exactly how you guys feel right now about me as your last out at me because I used to do it to Christians too. I treated the way spitefully. I put women in jail. I had more hatred toward Christians than you have towards me now. And all of this that Paul says and just stating the fact is building credibility to Paul's dramatic conversion. Why in the world would Saul of Tarsus ever become one of these whom he hated so much? Well, we see why here in verse six, that he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, who told him that by persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting who? Christ himself. You persecute the church, you persecute me. He says there in verse 9 that he had this entourage of guys with him who all saw the light when Jesus appeared and spoke, but they didn't hear an, an actual voice. They didn't actually hear an intelligible language. Now that actually adds even more credibility to Paul's case. He says, there are others around me who were witnesses to what I saw that day on the road to Damascus. And then he tells, as he gets to verse 12, that, you know, there's this man named Ananias who when I made it to Damascus, Ananias was told to come and get me. And he basically says, I've got more credibility. Ananias here, who was a devout man according to the law, had a good testimony according to the Jews. He had the right credentials. If it was, if Ananias came down here and testified, he would be a great witness to defend what happened to me there on the road to Damascus. And so he shares what happened with Ananias and how Ananias came and called him Brother Saul in verse 13. And Paul looked up at him and he said this incredible verse in verse 14. Man, the God of our fathers has chosen you. He's chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. And so arise, be baptized. Wash away your sins and call on the name of the Lord. There's two commands there. Both are important, but only one saves. Calling on the name of the Lord, Romans tells us, is what saves. Baptism is that outward reflection, that outward symbol of what happened in your heart and in your life that day that you called on the name of the Lord. And in the book of Acts, we see them often linked together. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. As it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, verse 17, I was praying in the temple. I 
was in a trance, and I saw him say to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Here's Jesus speaking to Paul saying, get out of here. It's not safe. But Paul argues with Jesus there and says, Lord, come on, man, I've got some credentials. I used to persecute the church. Church, surely they'll believe me. These are my old classmates here in Jerusalem. I'll tell you what, whenever there's an argument between you and the Lord, the Lord will win. So just submit to him, okay? And so the Lord said to him, you know, get get out of there. Depart in verse 21, for I'll send you far from here to the Gentiles. And even that story, that testimony of him being in the temple and going into this trance, it was credibility. It, it should have been credibility to a fair listener because it was there while he was in the temple that the Lord spoke to him. Just as Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six had that call placed on his life, Paul had a call put on his life in the temple to go to the who? Go to the Gentiles. And you read in verse 22, they listened to him and tell this word. He had a captive audience. They were listening. They were quiet. They're, oh, wow, wow, resurrect Jesus? And, you know, uh, man, Ananias? I've heard of this Ananias in Damascus. And he is of good reputation. And, you know, they're listening. And then it wasn't a word about Jesus or Jesus being alive that caused the uproar again. But what was the word about? That God loved and cared about the Gentiles. And, man, when they heard that the dam that was holding back all of their wrath broke open and they raised their voices and they said away with such a fellow from the earth for he is not fit to live and then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might not that he might know uh, why they shouted so against him and so you can just picture these guys the moment that word gentile is used you know one guy shouting out, away with him. And another guy shouting out, you know, rid the earth of him. And another guy shouting out, let's rip our clothes open and let's throw dust up in the air as an expression of our disgust at that word Gentiles being used in the holy temple. And so this riot breaks forth again and guys are shouting out basically blasphemy. How could God ever love the Gentiles and send somebody to the Gentiles? Who cares if Jesus is alive? We hate those Gentiles. And so they said, kill Paul basically, away with him. Such a similar parallel to Jesus when they shout out, away with him and crucify him, rid the earth of him. You know, in Paul's testimony, he shares with his former friends and his former colleagues and his former instructors how he had been converted. Isn't that a beautiful word? You know, the world uses it as, as a poison almost. It's just like this disgusting word. Were you trying to convert me? Yes, <laughs> trying to convert you from darkness to light. Paul was converted from darkness and hatred kicking against Jesus to a radical life of love and servitude of the living God. His life was radically altered. Some of you remember that day when you were converted, when your life was radically altered. You know, you remember those days where you would come into church and they would sing those songs and you would hate those songs and they would smile at you with those smiles and you would hate those smiles and you would listen to the pastor and you would hate his preaching and you might not care for it much anymore still, but you know, you don't hate it anymore at least. But you remember that day when you were transformed to all of a sudden you're singing the songs with everybody and you're giving that same grin to everybody because you have the joy of the living Jesus in your heart and you're hugging people. I never was a hugger and now I'm hugging people cheek to cheek, you know? What is up with this? And now I'm out and I'm telling people about this Jesus that used to make me so uncomfortable. Just the mention of his name would goosebumps down my back, but I was con I was born again. Holy Spirit came in, made me a new creation in Christ. No one can argue with the power of a changed life. No one could argue with
with Paul's changed life here. And so we see that although the crowd shouted out, away with him, away with him, and he was led to be scourged with the phlegorum, with the leather straps, with the glass and the metal and the bone, to you know, perhaps even the exact same whip that was used on Jesus, all things were stopped by the sovereignty of God and that Paul was a Roman citizen. You know, so often we get bitter towards the governing authorities over our lives and we quit praying for those that God's placed over us as a nation to lead us. And yet how incredible that in God's grand scope and plan, so often that government that we so resent will so save our lives and protect us. And here Paul's Roman citizenship that he was born into while this Roman commander had bought it in bribery and dishonestly. And yet the one who's being accused says, I was born honestly a Roman citizen. And by the sovereignty of God, you shouldn't whip me right now. And so Paul's life was spared at this moment. He probably would have been killed. God sovereignly used his citizenship. And in a couple chapters, we're going to see Jesus uh, speak, or actually one chapter, chapter 23, verse 11, we're going to see Jesus speak again to Paul and say, as you've testified of me here in Jerusalem, you're going to testify in Rome. And so an exciting trial here, really, as we've seen Paul's first defense out of six defenses in the rest of the book of Acts. And interesting, it all began this day. It all began with slander and misunderstanding and assuming things and bitterness and taking those lies that would support our prejudice and just vomiting it out upon the person we're prejudiced against to the point where Paul almost took lashings upon his back, did take beating. But in the midst of even that, we see the danger of that. We're warned against that as Christians, that we do not partake in that slander and in those wicked assumptions. But we see how to respond when it happens against us. That we would respond with diplomacy, with tact, with skill, with love, with manners, with intimacy, friends and brothers. And may the Lord work a sanctifying work in us. That we wouldn't gossip, we wouldn't slander, but that we wouldn't revile in return when it does happen to us. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll go ahead and have Stuart come on up. You can put your things aside. You know, there was something in Paul's life that brought him from being a murderer of Christians and a persecutor of Christians to being one of the most powerful Christians that ever lived on the face of the earth. And we read about it in this chapter. It was an encounter with the risen Jesus. And man, I pray today that you would encounter the risen Jesus. You could even say right now, Lord, just show me yourself as you showed yourself to Paul on the road now. How I'm kicking against you like Paul was kicking against you. Lord, I want to quit kicking against you. I want to quit hiding from you. And I want to hide. And you can hide in Jesus today. You can have him wash away your sins. You can have him protect you. He will convert you. He will change you. He will be in control of your life and he will direct your life. As the crowd said, away with him, away with him, God said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm directing his life. You don't have the say. And just in, in, in your heart, through faith, just ask Jesus to change you. Ask Jesus to convert you from darkness to light. Ask Jesus to protect you. Ask Jesus to direct you. And I really believe that there are some here today that the word from Ananias to Paul is fitting. That the God God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, that you should see the just one. You should hear the voice of his mouth. I believe today that the father's chosen you to know his will, to see him in his justice and in his glory. And that for the first time in your life today, you would hear the word of his mouth. And my plea to you is that you would arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We don't have a baptism here today, but in a few weeks, we're going to have a 
baptism. But today, you can be washed of your sins just by calling on the name of the Lord. So call on the name of the Lord right now. Just as if you were sinking in an ocean and a rescue vessel came to snatch you out, you would just call on the name of the rescue vessel. Use that same faith today to call on the name of the Lord, to allow him to save you and change you and protect you and direct you just as he did Paul. Let's stand and we'll close with this song. And Lord, as we do, I pray that you would just purify this church, purge out of us just where we have just gossip and slander. Some of us, we've been practicing it. Some of us have been idle and that's just been leading to this, this life of gossip and slandering others. We just want to repent today of that. Lord, assuming things about others. Lord, I even know in my life, there's just been assumptions. And Lord, that's just lies. Lord, we want to cast down assumptions. Lord, we just ask you to shine on us your light and purify us. And Lord, grant us the grace to respond to our accuser with skill and truth, not defending ourselves, but defending you. In Jesus' name, let's close with this. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.